Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with the sports-loving Teos Abadia. I, I noted your shirt. Uh, unfortunately, sad sad news for the Colombian World Cup women's soccer team. Yeah, they, they were amazing, though. I, I so enjoyed watching this team. Uh, so I'm celebrating them even after that loss. Very proud of how far we went. Uh, we went down to England, uh, which, as we all know, should be punished for all of their past sins and not allowed to win anymore. But somehow they, they got in an extra goal. And uh, we have to honor that. But um, no, I'm kidding. They, they played really well, too. It was a great game. Loved it. Loved everything about the uh, Colombian women's games. They were just fantastic. If you have, if folks listening, especially Mike Shea, have not watched a women's soccer game recently, treat yourself to that because it's incredible how good that game has become. Like it is, it is so different than it was a while back. It's a, a really clean, beautiful, powerful sport. Really fantastic. I loved every bit I watched. Yeah. Yeah, in the U.S., you know, we've been seeing over the years the the sport grow in popularity, and it's just exploding and exploding. And now that Messi is playing in in the U.S., um, we're only seeing it uh, more. So, still though, I I prefer role playing games. So maybe we should talk about that. I concede this. I know, <laughs> just this once. So. Uh, you know, speaking of things that have been growing in popularity over the years, we have uh, D&D and role-playing games here. And we also have listeners who love to ask us questions, and we love to answer them. So let's get to our first listener corner question. This comes from Rory, the Dungeon Master Pastor via Mastodon. Ooh, that's a tongue twister. Mm -hmm. Looking ahead to the DM's workshop part of the Dungeon Master's Guide, what changes would you make to create a super light version of D&D? Multiple times I found myself hanging out with a group of folks who are interested to try playing, but we don't have much in the way of materials. How could you get to the game to the table with as few materials and as little prep as possible? What would it take to make it possible to go on the spur of the moment and be playing in 10 to 15 minutes? Perfect time for this question for me. Unfortunately, I have an NDA in place that I can't really talk about it, but let's say I am smack dab in the middle of, of something along these lines. Uh, so I have been thinking and working in this space for quite a while uh, up till now. So hopefully in a few months, I will be able to talk about this in super great detail. Here are some questions, though, that this, this question spawned. What experience do you envision the players having? That's, that's the first question. We know what a regular D&D game is. What experiences of that do you want to highlight? You can't have everything because otherwise you'd need the full rules for that. But what do you, what do you envision? And what do you think would be fun for these players? Okay, that's one way of looking at it from the experience side. The next question is, what makes D&D D&D? Uh, what, what could such a game do without from D&D? And what must this game include to still be called D&D even though you're playing it uh, more quickly and it's a lighter version? If you can 
start by answering those two questions, one on the end experience side, one on the sort of brand uh, side. Then you meld those two things together, and now you can start building that game. Uh, I wish I could go into more detail because, <laughs> oh, I could talk about this for a whole show. That sounds but fun. I can't I talk about this for a whole show. Uh, I'm, yeah. Well, I'm excited to see what you've got cooking. Um, uh, on my end, what I would probably do is is do what I did back uh, a, a while back when I heard that 5e was was being created. Uh, I played OD&D. Uh, and... Playing mm -hmm. that, which, I mean, if you look at the old rules, are just it's such a simple thing, right? And if you, if you go down to that level mm -hmm. of simplicity and play and see what it provides and what it's lacking, right? Like, what does it feel like when every weapon, everything does D6 damage that the players can muster? Um, I guess aside from spells, maybe. I'm not even sure if there's some spells that do otherwise. But by and large, everything is a D6, right? Every weapon, for sure. Um, you know, what, what does that do to the game? What's it missing? And so what do you need to add back in, right? Like, can you avoid weapon lists? Can you avoid feats? Can you, you know, all those things, right? Can you just go for a few levels? Can you have every level be essentially meaningless? Is that okay? Um, so the more you can ask those types of questions, the more that you can ascertain what has to be added or not added. But that's probably what I'd do. I'd go back and play that and reduce that. And in terms of something that might be an option in a DMG, what you might be looking at is a laundry list of things that DMs can remove. And and again, like, you know, whether that would be something that's palatable to the DM that's reading that. Will the DM go like, yeah, okay, that's great. I, I'm excited to try this because if it isn't, then what's the point of that optional rule? But but you'd have to kind of do that. When I look at OSR games, um, some of them feel like basic D&D various editions of them, <laughs> you know, this set, that set. Um, some of them feel like another game that is like that, but different. And that can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing depending yeah. on the game, right? But they are often just, they're a thing, but they're not necessarily, like you said, what is D&D, &D, right? That is the, the crux of the question when you are the actual company having to make that light experience. How do you capture that still feeling that way? And that's tough. Right, and part of the problem is DMs, and I, I speak as one of those mm -hmm. problems, because we who have played the full version of D&D know how great it is and know how cool it is, and we want to show all of that off when we teach the game. And oftentimes, by trying to do that, we do a disservice to both the players that we're trying to teach and the game itself by not accepting those limitations and just delivering a cool experience that can then be built upon later if the players want to go to a lar larger, longer, more complex rule set. Yeah, So. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Great question though. Next we have Synthetic 20 via YouTube. I've been working on my game and questioning a lot of base assumptions about game design. Good for you. So here's a question for the next listener corner. What do you think works better in TTRPGs, a leveling system with standard progression or an experience buying system where each player can customize their character? Or maybe for whom do these systems work better for? Uh, always interested in hearing your collective wisdom. Well. Not intelligence, wisdom. There's a difference. Uh, 
So th- this is just my opinion, but I honestly think leveling is D&D's secret weapon. I think that it delivers something to the players in a satisfying way that keeps people who might try other games and who might even like other games coming back to D&D because I don't think other games handle that leveling progression, that increase in power and scope of power and scope of play like D&D does. Now, it's not something that I care for personally myself. I'm not like, ooh, I can't wait to level up uh, to get this new cool thing. Uh, but I have played so much, DM so much, that I recognize what it means for other people. So I know of that appeal. And for that reason, I think leveling, the leveling system with the standard progression works best for a majority of the players. For players who are, are more casual, it gives you what you get. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to do any major math in your head. You're just like, oh, I'm a rogue. I'm level three. Now I'm level four. Oh, what do I get? Oh, good. That's what I get. Fill it in. You're ready to go. You might think that for more gamist players, for more like power gamer type players, that this other system of having a number of points and then reading through a bunch of options would be better. And sometimes it is. But I think what what the standardization does is it allows even those gamist players to work through permutations more quickly in their head, saying, okay, I've, I know that if I go from level six to level seven in Rogue, this is what I get. I know that if I take a level of fighter, this is what I get. So it allows those computations to be made more efficiently and you know what you're getting. So mm-hmm. you can just figure that out. Uh, what do you think, Taylor? Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, games like Shadowrun, where you spend some amount of, you know, karma or points or whatever, and then you can, you know, level up specifically your sword fighting or your shooting or whatever. Those are in some ways satisfying because you can really focus on the things you want to do well. But usually the game then has to struggle to balance out those things because we can't have you just be the world's best person at, you know, Samurai Sword. So we have to do something like an increasing point cost as you go up or whatever. And so it just can become harder and harder to keep balanced. And usually what the optimization ends up hinging on is less on that, you know, I got it to rank 10, but more something else that adds to that or plays off of that, which becomes really hard to control. So the rest of the game outside of those things. So games like um, Legend of Five Rings has historically super struggled with the difference between not just your rings and your skill ranks, but then some feat, some school option, some training that then multiplies everything absurdly and becomes just completely broken. Um, And those things become really hard because it sort of locks in the flavor of everything else you can do and makes it hard. The level system is nice because both player, designer, game master, all of it can sort of count on this sort of, you know, the level being a level. And, and play off of that more more accurately, I think. So it's a little easier. Now, I think if the game is super simple, that's where point by could be more sensible, right? Like if your game has so few options that it's not really ever going to be broken, then choosing whether you want to be good at, you know, swords or talking could be great because it's a simple game that doesn't ever reach broken levels, then that could be fine. You know, that could, in fact, could be very satisfying. Yeah, there are certain games, like you say, uh... Like the gumshoe system, I yeah. think, has that sort of progression. 
and and it works in that system because the system is different than a d20 kind of system all right let's get to then john peterson who comes in via our patreon his three questions which we will take in order i've been going through your back catalog of episodes and came across a series on creating stronger starts in the hardcover adventures the first adventure you cover not surprisingly, is Lost Minds of Fandelver. With Fandelver and Below incorporating Lost Minds into the book, do you think we'll see edits of the now nine-year-old starter adventure, or do you think we'll just get a copy and paste from Wizards? So I don't know. I have not seen any previews. If there are previews out there, I could be totally wrong. I would. Have you seen any previews? No. Okay. So I, I assume then that Fandelver and Below will push the timeline forward. Um, if I was designing it, that's what I would do. So that people who have played previous iterations of uh, Fandolin and that surrounding area could feel a sense of forward momentum. And in fact, I'd be surprised if the source book adventure didn't explicitly say, hey, in this, this is what happens. If you want to go back and play that, assuming that it's available, uh, here's how you can incorporate it into, into this. Uh, but I'm not there. I don't know all the business cases or you know, all of the business knowledge or design uh, decisions that were made. So I don't know. Yeah, it's a hard question because some of it is, is just timing effort, right? And, um, you know, uh, the 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 author was someone who was ex Wizards of the Coast, um, and um, uh, Rich, what's his last name? Rich Baker. Baker, and um, so you know they could I guess contract Rich again, or someone could add to what Rich did, but it would be a lot of work to redo that. And and even if you just start polishing, boy, you could burn some hours. And and you know I'm sure I would. I, I I'm the kind of person who would say. I'll just give it a few touch-up bits here. And then, you know, I would spend weeks on it. And I think everybody's probably really busy. So I wouldn't be shocked if it was just like, here's the same adventure. as a, Because on one hand, you can sort of say like, look, we didn't stop printing it, right? Like, we we kind of, here it is. Um, but then maybe add some things to it or, or speak to it in some way. Or that the new content plays off of it and revisits it. And as Sean, as you said, you know, some way to maybe like, Play it, but in a new era or something like that, or tie it better to those whatever's coming as new could make sense. But I would kind of guess a copy paste. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. One of the coolest things from old DD that I remember was the Village of Hamlet was its own adventure. Many, many players in the AD&D days started out with that as their first adventure or an intro adventure. And it promised the temple of elemental evil and we waited and we waited and we waited and finally after i don't even know how many years it came and it re-included the village of hamlet and uh you know there were there were tweaks there were changes mm -hmm. and i was like okay that's cool and then for third edition monty cook made return to the temple of elemental evil which turned everything on its head a little bit right you went back to the moat house and all of these cool things that you didn't realize were there the first time were now there right there's this monolith beneath the pool with the giant crab in it 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just like, oh, this is so cool. Now, I don't, they probably don't have the time to do something like that. But if they did, that would yeah. be like, wow, that would be amazing. It would be um, I, that's the best case scenario. And I'm not expecting that. Mm-mm. No. The next question is artist Greg Rakowski has been in the news recently for his ongoing fight with open source AI art generator Stable Diffusion and its community that refuses to let his work go. As a DM who intends to publish soon, but is always looking for free to use art in the meantime, do you have any good free art resources to recommend? I don't. Um, I've always worked for people and we always have an art director and artists that we use. So I'm going to defer to Teo's here. Um, yeah, you know, I, I didn't pull things together, but maybe I'll add some links in the in the show notes um, after this. But but there are a couple of good things. One uh, comes to mind is um, uh, James Intercasso on his World Builder blog. He had an article on creating for the DMs Guild, uh, as did Justice Armand. And I believe in both of those articles, they list a number of free art sources that you can turn to. Um, there are a ton. Um, there are also a lot of very low-cost stock art that is cheap. Uh, if you go on Drive Through RPG, you'll find all kinds of sources where you know you're paying a dollar for the art. The key to stock art or free art, uh, oh, the, and I should also say that you can go to various websites that provide stock art that are often subscription-based. You really can sign up for just a month, and you can usually use some number of items. It's often pretty big, like a hundred or something like that, and then you can cancel your subscription. Um, so, you know, th- those kinds of, of, of ways, there are lots of ways to have a very, very low art budget. The key to these things is that you are not commissioning exactly what you want. So you either have to go with things that you like and put those things into your book, your book or adventure or whatever it is that you're creating, or, um, just deal with the fact that the art is somewhat representative and attention getting rather than being an exact reproduction, right? I mean, wizards. Uh, Ghostfire, you know, they can say this page is dealing with this subject. Let's commission someone to create this. All right, that's what we also did for Forge of Foes. Like, commission the exact art for the topic. Um, you can't do that. <laughs> Stock art. You're not going to find exactly what you want. And so you kind of have to change your approach to art to, to suit that style. But you will have really, really low costs, and that's amazing. And finally, John says, love the podcast and appreciate the wisdom slash intelligence y'all have to share. Playing my first organized play games this weekend with Bald Man Games at Gen Con Online. And I don't think I've taken the plunge with, I would not have taken the plunge without your great conversations with the Adventures League and the Bald Man folks. I'm glad. I hope it went well. Let us know how it went. Uh, You know, Bald Man Games runs a great... uh, show either online or in person generally very good dms and great experiences so we'd love to hear uh, how that went next we have john hume via mastodon who says just listen to the mastering dungeons episode on downtime in the dungeon master's guide sean mentioned spending multiple consecutive acquisitions incorporated adventure sessions on quote downtime activities which had me wondering at what point it's no longer downtime and now just a different game mode or a different game i've always thought of downtime as stuff done out of session or in odd little maybe one-on-one sub sessions and so i'm gonna 
real quick, what I did was not what the adventure expects you to do, right? What I did was use downtime as a springboard for larger, sometimes for larger adventures. Sometimes it was just, okay, you're going to try to spread rumors. Boom, spread your, you know, roll the die, get your results. All right, here's what happens. However, sometimes I decided to use these downtime as a link to something outside of that of the book adventure to running something that I just wanted to run off the cuff for for many reasons to make it a more uh tailored story for my group but also to get more practice at like dming on the fly and and running uh running things off the cuff uh, so that was a choice on my part. Now I'm going to let Teos uh, <laughs> finish finish this. No, yeah, that's great. And and I was going to say sort of something similar, which is that that to be clear, in the Acquisitions Incorporated venture, downtime occurs in a regular cadence. So you kind of do the chapter worth of adventure. Uh, all kinds of things happen, and at the end of whatever session that is, where you reach this kind of conclusion to the chapter, which has a story beat conclusion feel, now downtime is suggested. So you, the DM, can run those sessions and go around the table and say, hey, you've got these various plot hooks. You've got these various character goals. What do you each want to do because you have some time now? And so that's the kind of idea that you have there, right? You know, the mayor grants you ownership of ruins. What do you want to do with those ruins, right? And everyone gets to decide, and a couple people might work together. Uh, so the ranger might say, you know, I want to train a beast that I rescued. The wizard wants to research the artifact that they think the enemy has. And two, the rest of the people maybe want to work on restoring the ruins. And so what's nice about doing it, not as, as the question asked, you know, out of session or in a subsession with just one player, is that by doing it there at the table, everybody's really invested in what's happening. You're seeing that play out. You're very aware of the story. It's not a thing that maybe someone's going to tell you secondhand later or see in an email. It's happening right there at the table. And even if you don't participate, you're enjoying it. And a lot of times downtime scenes are pretty kind of nice and story rich, but can be pretty focused. So they're a nice little bit that, that tells you about the world too, right? Like I like to do things like if you say I want to do pit fighting, I won't just say make three checks to see how you did in the ring. I will describe the ring. I'll describe the place that you go to and, and, and you know, what that area of town is like and who's attending. And I'll probably drop some NPCs in there um, that you'll get to know. And so that's of interest to everybody at the table to understand what the world is like, what those NPCs are like. And of course, there is the how did you do in the ring part, but that's woven into everything, right? And, and because what's cool is not only do you win or succeed in the ring, but you're going to also come out of it with hopefully some neat information you share with the rest of the group. Now everybody's seen it right there at the table. But that kind of makes you feel good that, you know, I went into the ring and I won or I lost, but hey, I, I've got a potential ally or I've learned of a villain or something like that. And that's usually pretty cool. For sure. Um, and, and it's worth so that saying, was our final question. Oh, yeah, I was just going to very quickly say that, you know, there are real mini games and you can certainly turn it into if you want to, but, but you don't need to do that, you know, kind of either as the adventure stands or as downtime is written. That's that's a that's a choice you get to make. Mm -hmm. We're going to stop our questions there because we have a lot of news to get to this week. Uh, so here we go with our news. Starting off, Hasbro's quarter two earnings report 
was released and D&D in particular was discussed. Teos did a deep dive into this, so I am going to sit back and enjoy the ride. All right, here we go. Uh, the short version is that Hasbro is down overall, uh, and they note that D&D is growing, though it seems like they're being specific around D&D Beyond. So there's a big kind of caution there. They confirm that the movie lost money, E1 is now sold, and they see Baldur's Gate 3 as a big deal. So hopefully that's very interesting, and we'll get into some details here as quickly as we can. Hasbro lost, in quarter two, $235 million. Their revenue of $1.2 billion is down percent, 10% compared to last year. Their offering, operating profit of $137 million is down 43% versus last year. Not good at all including a loss of $25 million for the D&D Honor Among Thieves film. They said, quote, the movie is among the best-reviewed films of 2023 and has performed well in streaming, but the box office didn't meet expectations. Um, Year-to-date revenue, $2.2 billion, and that is down 12% from last year. So, you know, that's all bad news for investors, uh, which they, of course, try to pretty up when they can, as any company does. Um, the Wizards of the Coast and digital gaming segment is a, a unit. And for that unit, they say the revenues are down 11%, mostly due to one fewer Magic the Gathering set, which is sort of, I wondered to what extent this is like them trying to counter that story that was written, uh, I think it was last year, saying like too many Magic cards. Like, are they just trying to say like, see if we'd had one more set? Um, but but <laughs> that was their main explanation. Uh, they have a profit of 142 million, which is about two thirds of what it was a year ago. The operating margin is also down 53%, 53.7% from last year. Um, they said the decline in tabletop was partially offset by 33% growth in digital gaming, including the addition of D&D Beyond, which we acquired last May, and growth in Arena. And it's always hard for us on the RPG side to go, oh, look, you just lumped together D&D Beyond and Magic the Gathering Arena, like any, mm-hmm. who knows how different they are, right? Um, you've pointed this out in the past too, Sean. So it, it's it's really hard to know. They said 74% Q2 growth in D&D, presumably from D&D Beyond, hard to know. They also said they generated 2 million new registered users on D&D Beyond, but those aren't necessarily paying subscribers, so it's hard to say. Um, they did say point of sales, meaning store sales have grown for D&D and Magic. Hasbro Pulse, which is their direct sales website, grew by 54%, uh, but that's about 100 to $200 million in revenue. Um, they expect a strong second half of the year in part due to the release of the Baldur's Gate 3 video game. They did also confirm that they sold about 85% of E1 which was their entertainment arm that we often discuss on the show, to Lionsgate for $500 million. Hasbro paid $4 billion in 2019, right, just four years ago, to purchase it. They did sell some parts off, like, at the very beginning, and, you know, they're keeping some of it, but $500 million just can't be pretty uh, overall on how that looks to go from $4 billion to $500 million, even if you had several other sales and are keeping some parts. 
Now they are, this is the part that gets, you know, always so interesting, right? They are keeping a department called Hasbro Entertainment or maybe even building it to develop, finance, and produce entertainment based on Hasbro brands. So it's a team that's continu continue to work on the Transformers 1 animated film and the D&D live action television series, both with their partners at Paramount. Um, they said that the movie releases did drive both Transformers and Dungeons and Dragons sales. Um, and then there's some really interesting things, Sean, that came to light around this discussion of Baldur's Gate 3. And this often came in the context of what they said in the past, which was things like, we're going to monetize D&D, or D&D is going to be a billion-dollar brand, or any number of these things. And you're like, oh, really? Cool. Tell me how. Um, so this is uh, CEO Chris Cox said the following, quote, you know, when you look at a game like Baldur's Gate 3, I view that as a block, the equivalent of a blockbuster movie release. You know, just to put in perspective, we think Baldur's Gate 3 has the potential to be a game of the year contender. It will engage millions of highly targeted fans and be highly accretive to the D&D brand. And just to kind of put it in financial perspective, here's the good part. We will likely make more money on Baldur's Gate 3 than we have made on all of our film licensing for the last five to 10 years combined. Mm -hmm. I think he means Hasbro yeah. film licensing. Let that so sink in. <laughs> that's big. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's not only a great brand win, it's a great financial win for us, and I think it's a heavy focus of the company moving forward. We purposely stated in this release that we're a leading toy and game company. It's a, it's really fascinating, Sean, because, uh, you know, on one hand, okay, that's great news, but they also cut back on a whole bunch of video games projects that we're doing, right? So when one succeeds, mm -hmm. it's enormous but they can also fail and require a lot of expensive investments. So, um, Right. And notice the one that did succeed was one that wasn't a Wizards mm -hmm. of the Coast right, uh, subsidiary, right? It wasn't Took. It wasn't, it right. was Larian, who is a proven winner in terms of game design. Yeah. So all of that needs to be balanced out. Uh, but yeah, just, yeah. we tend to think that movies are the big thing, right? Studio films and theaters. And that shows you where video games are right now in relation to, to especially big budget movies. Yeah. And they shared news on the D and D TV show. Some folks have been worried, well, maybe this is going to go away, but, um, it's interesting. They say, we're also doing production for things like a D and D TV series. Now that is a cost plus model that Paramount is fully funding. So we get the production margin from that, plus like a licensing fee for being an IP owner on something like that. So it seems like it's a very low risk model. So that's good news for it not being canceled or anything like that. Um, and there were a couple of really interesting right. investor questions. One of them said, basically, hey, you made it sound like D&D was this huge, big piece of the plan to double the wizard's business. Is that kind of now at risk and the answer was quote i would say the underlying thesis of our D, D business was all about digital to me entertainment's a kicker so sort of saying like m movies wasn't the bet and and not even addressing tabletop publishing <laughs> you know it was video right. games and that mm -hmm. oh sean that hit me 
that hurt a bit. Mm-hmm. Did you well, feel digital that? video games, but di- digital also D and D Beyond. Yes, and right. virtual tabletop. And, and, right, and and all of that I think is where the crux of this is is resting. I think they are betting heavily that once they get a virtual tabletop going, once they get fully fully integrated between D&D Beyond and a virtual tabletop and the rules and mm-hmm. all of that coming together, it's going to be the best of all worlds. It's going to be the yeah. best of digital entertainment and it's going to be the best of tabletop role-playing games that that will not just be it's going to be the sum the sum of it is going to be greater than its parts i think that's what their hope is yeah. now will it happen i don't know well i, I like will how it you happen said the in word... a way that is financially viable <laughs> yeah yeah and i like that you I said the word betting um there's a quote here i won't read it all yeah. out but basically what they're saying is the rpg market is 80 million people video game rpg players is 800 million and i think they're hoping to sort of tap into that through these plays but i don't know that dnd beyond and the virtual tabletop reach 800 million yes the baldur's gate 3 game does but you know those dnd beyond the virtual tabletop may be locked into 80 million people and it's not clear to me i mean the vtt has no pricing model as far as we know and one presumes that somewhere there's at least back of the envelope calculations i sure hope but um but there's no stated pricing model and, and this feels like a, a all like a lot of i don't want to say it's just a lot of talk but but it, it lacks on details and so we'll see how this evolves we've already seen several evolutions just in the last two years around these investor calls but um very interesting and then and they end with this quote and so i think Baldur's gate three is just the first of several new digital initiatives you're going to see from us that span how we can try to transform tabletop role-playing gaming to an even richer kind of theater of the mind experience to more traditional video games from us and partners like Larian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they can do that, great. It's just a matter of, you know, show me not the money, because uh, we already know you have the money to show, right? Show me the progress, show me the themes and the the mind uh you know the mind map that you have make taking that from idea to actual product is where uh where the rubber meets the road if you will and and nothing here says the 2024 rules are pivotal to our strategy or anything like that right and right. and i think it it was sounding like they were before or maybe a little more part of the conversation and i wonder sort of how that the tenor of that conversation has changed internally. Sometimes D&D is at its best when it, when the corporates forget about it or think of it as something they might sell off and they just mm-hmm. let people do stuff. Um, so maybe we're going to go back towards that to where the group can just do make the best games they they want and not worry too much about it. But but I, I sort of don't know that that's the, like, I don't trust that's the case. I think instead that it's going to have to be, you know, focus on the virtual tabletop, even though you're trying to make print products somehow. And, and that could be uncomfortable. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go from the business side of things to the AI side of things. Uh, last week, we covered the AI art uh, fiasco that came out while Gen Con was happening. And we're not going to rehash that, but uh, Wizards of the Coast has released a statement saying that 
the art that was commissioned that had this AI uh, bent to it was sent in before that there before there was an AI policy in the contracts. So uh, now moving forward, or even going back, there was a policy about AI. It just didn't reach far enough back for that piece. And they also said, quote, multiple members of our art team and art team leadership have personally re-reviewed each piece of art in Glory of the Giants, Deck of Many Things set, Fandelver and Below, Planescape for potential AI art usage. No generative AI art usage beyond what has already been identified in Glory of the Giants and the Giants of the Starforge was found. So if you believe what they're saying here, th that was it. Those two instances were the only two. Everything going forward will now be completely clear of AI art. Any thoughts there or just statement uh, and i think great. it's what it has to be I, I don't have any particular blame or praise for wizards i think these things are hard and and everybody's trying to do what they can across the industry so that's all seems good to me in, in terms of trying to yep. do the best they can with the situation sweet uh gen con has announced attendance record was set more than seventy thousand unique attendees in 2023 the 20th year of it being in Indianapolis. For uh, comparison's sake, in the year 2000, where I believe it was in Milwaukee, the attendance was 20,000 people. So 50,000 more here in 2023 in a brand new city. Gen Con sold out of badges, and they've renewed the contract with the city of Indianapolis through 2030. So we're going to see Gen Con in Indy for at least... Doing that in my head. Six more years, uh, seven more years, depending on when 2023 mm -hmm. is. Uh, Gen Con has said that events, uh, the event generated almost $75 million in economic impact for Indianapolis. Gen Con 2024, August 1st through 4th. Write it down on your calendar. Uh, if you're interested in what happened in Gen Con Online, one of the patrons of our show and game designer Richard Green blogged about his experience at Gen Con Online. Um, not just the Bald Man Games Adventures League stuff, but all of the different uh, games he played. And so there's a link in our show notes to richardgreengames.com where you can read Richard's uh, his review of the games that he played. Um, continuing with uh, some convention news we have bald man games will be running stuff dnd wise and other hasbro watsy stuff at pax west since pax west is seeing renewed interest bald man games will be there it is september 1st through 4th and you're going to be involved in that teos i am i'm going to be helping to to run the events there so i hope to see uh, some great judges there anybody who's who's listening who is interested uh, head to baldmangames.com slash pax.-west uh, link in our show notes and sign up to dm and i think this is going to be the uh, the kind of the beachhead for future years so this year will be more about mm -hmm. establishing and then we'll look at really improving uh, the show from there on so this, this is just a foot in the ground there's not a lot of time to plan uh, we're going to run games that's the focus mm -hmm. um, and then in the future looking at creating right. that better experience 
Awesome. Well, I'm sure the, sure the experience will be great with you and other West Coast DMs there to uh, run the D&D games for the masses. Masses are playing Baldur's Gate 3, according to the play data released by Larian Studios, which has told us this player data, including... <laughs> this is This is amazing. During launch weekend... 100 or 1,225 years worth of play have taken place. Uh, a combined 88 years was just character creation with 10% of the players spending at least an hour creating their character. 368 players have finished the game completely in three days. Uh, the pink peak concurrent player count was just shy of a million, 815,000. And Half-Elf was the first number one player race choice. You the have to laugh Number one choice for a class, the Paladin. Yep. Half-Elf being the number one race choice is, is just, uh, you know, Wizards yeah. is like, oh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Hey, I, I'm sure that they will take uh, the... 815,000 players playing a D&D &D branded game. Yes, they will. Um, and hopefully turning some of those into further sales down the line of various things, including books, D&D &D Beyond subscriptions, T-shirts, baloney, etc., etc. We got some information about the 2024 playtest survey results. I did not watch the video, but we have gathered information from across the internet to hear what Jeremy Crawford and others have said about the results. Teos, anything stand out for you? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of things that stand out. And, and I think that this, the, what most folks are kind of saying is that it's a bit of a reversal on a number of things. And, and it's, it's interesting to characterize that the kind of thing that interests me the most is less the details and more that the character of the playtest, you know, I've often said I wish that they were experimenting, experimenting more the way that, that the 5e D&D Next playtest did in, before 2014. And it's almost like they have acted like everything was all very sure. And then now they're reversing course on a number of things. So it's like they were play testing, trying out things, I guess, but they didn't really characterize it that way. It all felt very fixed. And so, you know, things like these class lists that are broken up by different type of, of sort of being, I forget what they call them, but, you know, divine nature, arcane kind of thing are maybe going away mm -hmm. because they're starting to see that the play tests don't really favor that. And so they may go back to that 2014 model of spell list and things like the wizard being the class that has the greatest access to spells. Um, the warlock didn't test particularly well. So they're thinking of going back to the 2014 pack magic model. Um, and there are a number of minor things they talk about, you know, uh, Weapon Mastery does really well, and that's for sure going to be in the 2024 Player's Handbook. You know, things like Flex, one of the Weapon Mastery options didn't score well, uh, but they're going to, you know, tweak it and, and play with it and see. They believe in the math of it. It was another of those great moments where Jeremy Crawford goes, the math says it's strong. Why don't people like it? <laughs> it's like, well, okay, we don't always agree <laughs> on these things, but but you have your feedback. Um, right. 
And just, uh, yeah, what else? Uh, sorcerer spells, mixed responses, uh, the metamagic changes scored well. Um, the thing that really grabbed my attention was the statement that there will be three more players' handbook playtests, and then they switch to the DMG. And that always really puts it into perspective when you think, you know, we've got three more times where we're going to see players' handbook content to offer opinions on. Oof, that's right. That's where, where you feel that get real. And I, and I feel it for the team. I feel it for, for the community. Uh, and then that switched to the DMG. I'm very excited about that. You know, we're talking about this every week and, and to see what are they going to share from the DMG with us mm -hmm. and what will it look like. I mean, that's just fascinating. So. Yeah. I, I only read some highlights, but what I noticed was the continued theme of, and so we're reverting back to the 2014 version. And so we're reverting back to the 2000, which sort of, I think, goes to show that the game really didn't need a major revision and what we said from the very start is if you're trying to take advantage of the 50th anniversary just release a 50th anniversary thing but keep the rules basically the same and i think we've we're sort of moving back toward that uh yeah. toward that point with with at least the the specifics of the mechanics and the rules and that may be better for the game because I think that, you know, we, we're, I mean, 5e is so amazingly successful that altering it significantly doesn't really make sense now, but at some point probably will because eventually people do tire of things. There are some people who are tired now, right? But there will be many more people who are tired two years, three years, five years from now. And that's where it can really make sense to have an actual 6e at that point. And if you try to, bridge it and go halfway you, you may end up accomplishing neither goal so i i think the more it's like 2014 i think the better off they, that probably D, D is and wizards is in the long run but we shall see mm -hmm. easy for me to say we shall exactly exactly i am glad i am not involved in that uh process because i would definitely do things wrong but doing things right is Christian Hoffer at comicbook.com because he got the chance to interview Jeremy Crawford and has released the first part of that interview at comicbook.com. What does he say and what does Jeremy say? Well, let's get to it. Uh, uh, the, the article itself said Dungeons and Dragons does not view the recent revivals of Spelljammer, Planescape, and other campaign settings as, quote, one-shots and plans to revisit at least some of these worlds in the future. Uh, Jeremy told Christian that uh, setting adventures are among the most popular. Uh, well, yes and no. Curse of Strahd seems to lead the adventure sales, and Spelljammer had strong initial sales, but Dragonlance has been one of... Uh, lower. One of the flowers? Um, <laughs> uh, oh, lower. According to Bookscan data, that's that's Teos there, Teos on the notes. Yeah, the lower I mean, sellers. Because uh, like it's it so just tell, strikes tell me, me Sean, the, the the this statement that you know the some of these setting adventures are amongst the most popular. At least looking at the Bookscan data, I don't I don't quite agree with that statement. It's it's all over the place uh, as to what's popular and what's not and why. At least on on the Bookscan sales. Um, Spelljammer 
apparently still is doing actually fairly strong uh, and and the beginning was amazing but but you don't hear kind words for it out there and same thing with Dragonlance but Dragonlance has not had the strong sales what's interesting to me is that Jeremy doesn't say oh you're going to find a whole different approach with Planescape he seems to be defending them mm -hmm. both which suggests to me that Planescape's going to be like Spelljammer which is what a lot of people are fearing mm -hmm. um because spell jamming could be covered in a way that helps DMs create their own stories, helps them populate a solar system, come up with interesting travel, have ship battles, you know, do all of the things that are from that. Or in Dragonlance, you know, uh, play with no gods, um, discover the gods, uh, you know, uncover new threats. It doesn't tend to have that. Instead, it's kind of focused on that particular experience. So. I, I don't I don't know, you know, like it, it's interesting to hear Jeremy say this and I, and I wouldn't say that it's just one shots, but if the answer is things in the future, what what will that look like and how long do we wait? One of the points that Jeremy makes, and I'm not going to read his quote verbatim, is that there's there's a couple bits of good news with this new release. Um, and the more that the rules look like the 2014 rules and once those rules are finalized it means less changes need to be made so more focus can be put on these other settings more attention can be given to it so it's not just a one and done here's the source book the monster guide and the adventure and that's all we're going to do this gives them a chance to spend more time with their hired staff going back and doing those other things and they jeremy uses the term play first approach uh he says at certain times in dd's history it's been a read first approach because we've had points in history where we're producing so many books each year there was no way anyone could play all of it in some years it would be hard to play even a small percentage of the number of things that come out uh, but because we have a play first approach, we want to make sure we're coming out with things at a pace where if you really wanted to, and even that would you could play everything and even that would require a lot of weekends and evenings dedicated to D&D play. And that's what we've talked about since the start of yeah. 5e, right, which is the slow release, while it infuriated some people, was a smart business approach, maybe accidentally. Because it built a community that were all playing the same thing, and it gave everyone a chance to fully digest everything that came out. Yeah. And with the rapid succession of releases within the last couple of years, that has not been the case, which is why I think sales in some cases have been a little lower on certain products. Yeah, and I think that, you know, if I were in this room, I would have said to Jeremy, you know, I totally get why we don't have 40 Spelljammer products, you know, however many Dragonlance products, you know, 30, 50, whatever it was, you know, something completely absurd. I'm totally down with that. But <laughs> there's a difference between that. And, and I think it's also great. And I love the approach of saying, hey, you know, play first, right? That Spelljammer is going to be have this focused experience to it. Dragonlance, you know, a large part of it is the adventure. But also a little bit of help towards running in those worlds you know a little more help a little mm -hmm. better help would really be welcome right 
you know, is Planescape going to provide us the tools and guidance for planar adventures? Or is it going to tell us about Sigil and give us a single adventure that maybe takes us to a couple of planes? You know, those are two very different things. Mm -hmm. I don't need 40 Planescape adventures. We already have that, you know, if you really want it. Um, but but just a little more of that help that that and, and also that there's a difference between the adventure and to really speak to the DM about what's awesome about these settings. And and I think the products so far that we've seen could use a little more of that inspiration and 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 establishing tools, right? That those two things could really be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it will be interesting to see that once the current uh catalog comes out that they're that we've been waiting on and then the 2024 books come out like what's the first product after that because i think the first product after that will tell us a lot about what their plan will be going forward yeah and how they hope to address this issue of too much content versus putting out enough content to make it reasonable for game masters to have the content they want to play uh, so i am looking forward to hearing all about that <laughs> speaking of things that are coming out that you might want to play we've talked about rob schwalb's game shadow of the demon lord over and over again on the show including covering it in depth in one full episode well now his follow-up game shadow of the weird wizard is up on kickstarter you have until 6 a.m on september 7th to back the project i know i've backed it i know a lot of game designers i know uh have reached out to their fan base and said you really need to check this game out i don't need to say it anymore so it's there go get it and the last bit of crowdfunding news is aberration is a new board game coming from Ghostfire Gaming. It is Ghostfire Gaming's first board game. And we went and we got somebody who knows a little bit about board games to design this. Peter Lee, uh, if you don't know that name, you should. He, would, he was a designer on some amazing games you might've heard of, including Lords of Waterdeep, Tyrants of the Underdark, uh, the D&D Adventure System games, uh, he also worked on D&D, a 5th edition D&D, D&D minis games, uh, Magic the Gathering he worked on. So it's, uh, it's, it's in good hands in terms of game design. What's it about? Well, it's sort of an asymmetrical player power game where you're working together, a tower defense system, but it's also got bag building and worker placement elements. It's set in the Grim Hollow world of Etheris in the Burak Empire, where the great beast rages through the lands, corrupting everything in its path. So you are centered in a city. The great beast has passed by, creating aberrations of all shapes, sizes, and you need to fight them. I playtested it with Peter. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, he wrote about it at boardgamegeek.com. There's a link in the show notes. And if you want to be uh, told when it goes live, which will be in September, you can go to gamefound.com and search for Aberration. And you, if you sign up now to be notified, you can get a free pin uh, when you actually back it. 
fantastic. I can't wait for it. Peter Lee is and, just amazing. So now nice, nice get on that. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yep. Looking forward to it. I'll, I'll talk more about it as, uh, as we get closer to the fulfillment. So with the news covered, we now get to our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons. We are going to talk about Chapter 8 of the 2014 Dungeon Master's Guide. Chapter 8, Running the Game. Hmm. Good, good time to learn about running the game. <laughs> and that's the first, my first thought was running the game. Why is it Chapter 8? But it's sort of about running the game uh, with everything except the rules, or at least that's how it begins. So let's uh, let's dig in. Let's. What does chapter eight start with? It starts with this quote: "Rules enable you and your players to have fun at the table. The rules serve you, not vice versa. There are the rules of the game, and then there are table rules for how the game is played. For instance, players need to know what happens when one of them misses a session." They need to know whether to bring miniatures, any special rules you've decided to use, and how to treat a cocked die, a die that lands so that a face cannot be clearly read. These topics and more are covered in this chapter. And so I read that and I was like, okay, cool, yeah, this is this is sort of what we were talking about, right? This is sort of, tell me not about the rules, but about why, why these things, why are these things important? What are some other things that I need to think about as a game master that I might not have thought about? And so we get this first section is called table rules. And as I'm reading it, I realize this dichotomy of wanting that and then not liking it when it, when I get it. Uh, so for example, uh, they, they talk about, uh, table table rules of fostering respect, avoiding distractions, and having snacks available. And in general, those are good advice. And that's something as a DM, you a new DM might not think about. Oh yeah, I should foster respect at the table. I should find a way to avoid distractions. I should have snacks. That's sort of like avoiding distractions, right? <laughs> People get hungry. They can just reach out and grab something. It's but then they don't really say why it is good advice but make strange dictums like hire a babysitter <laughs> that may not be applicable or may just be like sort of condescending advice. Mm -hmm. Even when I, when I read that, I'm like, did the person who wrote that actually have children or ever <laughs> play with people with children? Because it's sort of like, it's almost snarky, although yeah, it's not it's meant of... to be, I'm sure. It, it made yeah. me think of a game at Gen Con where, where the, the couple would just like constantly be off taking care of their kid and, and the rest of us at the table were kind of right. like, mm, you know, like, and I get why you might say hire a babysitter, but there's probably a better way to say this, Sean. Right. You just say distractions can take away from the fun of a game. Yeah. They are best enjoyed when everyone can concentrate. Being in character, participating in the choices, participating in the story. So take steps when possible to eliminate distractions. For example, having snacks at the table. Well, but to say hire a babysitter. I've I've played at tables where like everyone at the table is holding a child. <laughs> and, and we were fine, right? Mm -hmm. Because we understood that. 
and we were able to avoid the worst distractions, right? Mm -hmm. I've been at tables where the mother is breastfeeding at the table. Mm -hmm. It went totally fine. Nobody cared. Everybody was good. So, right, to to make those very specific things, uh, yeah. we don't need that. We need yeah. to understand the why. Yeah. Not the, not the, not those. So, but throughout this chapter, I, I enjoyed most of this. I thought most mm -hmm. of this was good advice that new DMs or even uh, DMs who've been doing this for a while might need to hear because every game is different. Uh, so hearing from a different perspective is often illuminating. Yeah, you know what it made me think of is is how um, Van Richten's had that really good advice on running games. Um, I think it was Van Richten's, and 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 that kind of um, session zero type information. I, I remember that being a lot better in terms of how it was written, how it portrays that, how it imparts that information, and and the why mm -hmm. of it. And I think that's what I'd I'd like to mm -hmm. see here is is sort of a, a revisiting of this. But yeah, it's all nice content. And, and I think the main thing I found myself thinking is why wasn't this chapter one? Why would you mm -hmm. put this yeah. halfway through, especially this initial section uh, that's talking about how to run a gaming session and all of that. Like, I just think that should have come in earlier, which they did say they're gonna move to be earlier. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it comes down to this was probably added almost second you know as an afterthought like oh yeah we should do these things so like one person or maybe two people were like okay well in my games i know that speaking in and out of character is an important thing so i'm going to mention it here without really sourcing more mm -hmm. people to get a feel for that whereas with van richten's it was probably really uh thought of carefully and and designed like a game would be designed where somebody writes it people look at it people add their advice mm -hmm. and and uh build up and you know we we've learned a lot since 2014 to when van richten's was released to now yeah. so this chapter could have been session zero right this chapter could have been starting a game session zero and it could have been arranged in such a way that it managed uh to get the advice across in a way that was more resounding with new or even a veteran game masters. And I'll, and I'll say that there is a danger here, Sean, that when you focus on the prescriptive advice, but you're not explaining the why of it, you can end up being dated, mm -hmm. right? Like you talked about this time change mm -hmm. and then how over the years we've developed better and better techniques, but the techniques are based on the problems. And we're constantly trying to solve and improve and, and be better uh, about these problematic situations, these challenges. But the but whatever we prescribe, you know, may or may not be best. So like later when they talk about initiative, you know, they talk about like, oh, whiteboards and things like that. And and all I can think of is you guys are kind of prescribing the solutions that were used in third edition that were popular, right? Everybody mm -hmm. would buy the Paizo initiative tracking board and use that. And, you know, that is what, but what is it we're trying to do with efficiency around initiative, right? We're trying to cut down on the, wait, whose turn is it? Uh, or, you know, 
Susan, it's your turn. Oh, it's my turn. Oh, I didn't. Oh, let me see what my character sheet has because I wasn't prepared that, it, you know, so how do we do that? How do we give cues? How does everybody know when their turn is coming up? Why are we doing these various things, right? That kind of the why of it can then ground people in developing their own solutions too, right? Uh, but also mm -hmm. it helps understand, it helps teach that you want to improve over time. And that's something that this sort of whole chapter, I think kind of misses really saying is, think of all these subjects as things where you're gonna develop your own methodology. Here are some things that work, but you wanna mm -hmm. choose your own approach because this is not a, a, a done science. It's an, it's an evolving thing and, and you wanna find your way of doing it. Yeah, and we, you know, we can get right into some of these sections to highlight what Teos is talking about. Uh, which is like table talk was the first uh, subsection. And it says, set expectations about how players talk at the table. First bullet, make it clear who's speaking, the character or the player speaking out of character. Why does it matter? What, what, what's the problem that you, new mm -hmm. DM, are, or existing right. DM, are going to come up against for this? Uh, Decide how you feel about a player sharing information that his or her character wouldn't know or that the character is incapable of sharing as a result of being unconscious or dead or not at the not in the situation where the other players are. Are you all right with players retracting what they said their character did, right? And so these are great bits of advice. Why? Mm -hmm. Why? would a character retract what they just said their character did? Uh, yeah. Why would that come up? Me as a new DM, I would never know that. Right, right. And so, you know, breaking down that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's so many things where, like, taking back can be something that a problematic player will do to you deliberately if you allow them to do it. But most players... Yeah are being entirely reasonable and they're going like, Ooh, I missed that factor. Is it all right if I change this? Yeah, of course it is. You know, if, if, if the character would have known, then great. Right. But how to analyze right. that and think through it and, and what's behind it. And part of it is there's a, a whole missing part here about reading the player and reading the table, right? Understanding mm -hmm. where that person is coming from is a big part of it. This is friendships. This is relationships, right? There's a lot of respect mm -hmm. that's taking place in role-playing games. We're, we're, we're sharing experiences, there's vulnerability. And so a lot of these things around table talk, you want to understand that, right? And, and kind of help create a really cool environment. And those are the kind of things that I feel like other books have done a better job of speaking to this type of approach of honoring those other people at the table and creating a really good, healthy relationship versus just, you know, bullet point things you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh... Then we get into the dice rolling, which is sort of funny. And it says, uh, establish expectations around dice roll. That's, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's something that you, if you're playing with a group over the years, you do this automatically or you do it systematically over time. But if you're playing with a group at a convention or you're establishing a new group and situations come up where you're the DM and you decide to hide a role after you've been rolling out in the open, 
players might say, why, what, what just mm -hmm. happened there? Um, a, a good uh, discussion on fudging roles and why you might want to, might, why you might not want to. This is where they actually do a good job of saying, yeah. here is what this means. This is why you might want to. This is why you might not want to. You make the call in the long run. Yeah. So and the different I, things I, that, you know, I enjoy that. Impact. Yeah, they do a nice job. You're right. They really do a nice job of yeah. that of saying, you know, the role behind the screen creates mystery. Um, out of the open mm -hmm. can create tension, all that sort of thing. And and those are really good, good pieces. And, and overall, I mean, I think this is all pretty valuable. But there's some things that I think, like this next piece, rolling attacks and damage, rolling at the same time. You know, in, in the end, it's sort of like this gets to, there's a whole thing that's really around the larger topic of pacing and and what to do mm -hmm. about it and i and i think that if you say to everybody hey let's do this you know okay fine but i generally don't do that i roll them separately but i don't also delay it significantly with my way of doing it um right you know it, it, it's it's sort of like address things how to address things or how to think about the impacts is, is maybe better spent than these specific examples because i think it kind of leads you astray maybe on what the solution to anything yeah. is. I'll tell you, I right. mean, to me, it, if you were going to add like a this. thing here, you do not need to have the exact number of dice to make a roll. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that's my pet peeve. Right. When somebody wants, you know, 19 D6s and everybody in the convention center needs to pull out an individual D6 instead of just rolling one 19 times. That's, but that's my pet peeve. Mm -hmm. I don't, it doesn't actually deserve being in here either. <laughs> No, you know, one of the things that I always mention when it, this question comes up of, you know, I've been at tables where the DM says, you know, I, I roll to hit, oh, I hit, I start rolling my dice, and I'm like, why don't you roll them at the same time? And I'm like, well, I can, but if I roll them at the same time and I know I missed, but I did a lot of damage, that's when metagaming mm -hmm. starts to come in, where I'm like, oh, wait. Let me see if I can find that extra plus one on my, mm -hmm. uh, what's the first level cleric spell that does 46 damage? Uh, it's the Radiant Bolt or Guiding Bolt. Guiding Bolt, right? yeah. It's like, oh, my Guiding Bolt. Like, oh, I needed a 12 to hit. I got an 11, but oh, I rolled four sixes. All right, wait, do I have Bardic Inspiration? Is there, does anybody have any way I could get the actual, whereas if I roll it and I just miss and it's like four ones, I'm like, I, am, I don't even want to bother. So yeah. there, there are things about rolling it that do come into play if you do that, yeah. that you might not want. So, you know, that sort of thing needs to, if you're going to address it, address the full range of. Yeah, get to the larger, of, uh, the larger topic, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, what about rules discussions? They talk about rules discussion. And again, I think this is for a new DM. I think this is strong. This is some people love discussing the rules at the table. Some people mm -hmm. tolerate it. Some people hate it because they yeah, want to get good. to the story. Uh, the only thing I would have added to this discussion is if, if you are having a rules discussion that's going on too long, take the time to, to finish it only if it's something that's going to come up repeatedly. If it's something you're going to have to stop and think about every every other round, then just take the time to get it right mm -hmm. this time. 
if it's something that's just a one-off, then you can say, well, this is what my ruling is. We'll, we'll come back to it later. Uh, what was your take on the metagame thinking? Any, any thoughts on that? Because this is, I think, I feel like this is a topic that could have a whole chapter in a yeah. book. Um, and we could have whole episodes on what metagame means <laughs> because it's, it's constantly seen, sorry, I'm going to continue. It's constantly seen as a negative or not constantly, but often when it's brought up, it's like, oh, it's a metagamer. Oh, you're metagaming. And we don't stop and think about the good things that metagaming does for your game. Yeah. Because it is a game. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the experience. And so I think what I would probably say is, is that you, 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 a hard and fast rule would be problematic to the enjoyment because people do want mm -hmm. to sometimes have those kinds of discussions and it's okay to do that. If it's happening a lot or it's destructive or if there's a situation where you, you know, really want to get into it, then I think this sort of advice, like where they say here of saying, what do your characters think, right? That's what it prescribes here. That's great. Like, that's the right idea, right? Like, you know, yeah, yeah, you're doing a lot of analysis, but okay, you've got to make a decision. Your character has to make a decision now before the blah happens. What do they do, right? Mm -hmm. What would your character do? That kind of thing, no, that's good. And you just, you know, but but in general, it's not a, it's not a huge problem in most situations, right? And, and so, yeah. Right. And in and in many cases, at least in my experience, it's it's good when a player knows their character, when a player knows what their best thing is. How many times have you or me or someone else tried to teach new players the game and you put a character sheet in front of them and explain all the things they can do and they're good at? You're a wizard. You can cast these spells that can burn things from a distance so that you are in no danger while the fighter's up there taking on all the risk. And then the player is faced with the, with the you know, the beholder or the whatever. And they, oh, I have a crowbar. Well, I'm going to run up and hit it with my crowbar. And you can say, all right, but the metagame there is the understanding of what you're good at and you want the players to know that yeah. you want the the game to work the way the game is intended to work so there are different levels of metagaming and i wish that this had sort of engaged with mm -hmm. that discussion because it's important to let dms know that there are many different ways to play yeah. and not it's it's not right or wrong it's just your preference so you want to work with everyone's preference yeah. to get the experience that pleases the most people agreed yeah. uh they talk about missing players and how to handle that and again i think this was i think this was great i think this this hit all the highlights either have another player run the pc have the dm run the pc that's missing just decide the character's not there make up a story reason or assume the character's there but really doesn't participate unless it's super important that they have some input into the story or the game and uh what it doesn't just dis discuss though is how do you handle xp treasure and other rewards for that missing player when they come <laughs> back do they get all the experience do they have a share of the treasure do, you know, how, just a, a brief discussion on that would help because it is a point of contention for some people sure. uh, 
So, and uh, they had information on small groups, what to do, playing multiple characters, good advice there, and you know, bringing in new players. Some halfway decent advice doesn't necessarily go as deep as it could to explain some tricks of bringing in new players, some uh, some of the pitfalls, but it's it's there. It's okay. Yeah, serviceable. Yep. Yep. Uh, next, we get a section called the roll of the dice and what it, the dice mean to the game. Dice are neutral arbiters. They can determine the outcome of an action without assigning any motivation to the DM and without playing favorites. The extent to which you use them is entirely up to you. And I I want to set this down in front of <laughs> every DM. I don't care how long you've been DMing. Um, even experienced DMs forget this sometimes. And they give a great example of if you're going to be a die roller, you're going to roll for have the players roll for everything. This is what it means. If you're going to ignore die rolls and just make rulings, this is what it means. And then here's the middle ground. Um, and I think they did a good job there of of summing that up. You know, this whole section um, made me think about a, a recent article I read, um, which was a uh, a post that was sort of trying to look at the the OSR and kind of uh, it posits seven maxims of the OSR. And I, I can't say whether these, it's because it's trying to say like, hey, the OSR being a relatively new thing doesn't have a real definition and is always fighting over sort of what it's, how to define itself. And it kind of goes over different statements that are often made, maxims that are made and and how they come together. And, and I, I can't say whether these are accurate for OSR or not or properly done, but they're really fascinating to read from a perspective of game design and game evolution. And, and they do things like talk about, you know, role-playing versus role-playing and to what extent uh, the, the, what, what is the role of dice in the game when you're trying to create this sort of old-style feeling. Um, really fascinating things. And, and reading this section, I thought was actually helped by that recent article that I'd read, or the article that I'd recently, recently read um because i think this this is another case where the dmg is trying to play a bit across the additions and please all kinds of people right it's giving very flexible good advice mm -hmm. that it, it's easy to forget how many styles there are and and this whole chapter mm -hmm. i think does a pretty good job of speaking to different ways to run the game and it's a thing that's easy to forget because we have our style you know but yeah, and this is another where it really talks about, hey, rolling can be exciting, but rolling can also then take away from your creativity. So to what extent should you solve the problem with, you know, uh, pushing the mule that's been carrying your stuff in front to perhaps shield you from the trap versus making a check to disarm it, right? How much is it you coming up with a clever ploy versus just rolling dice to solve it away? And, and that middle ground. And so I thought this spoke really well to that. I, I, I liked this section. Yeah, the, the using ability score section, which which is next, mm -hmm. does sort of that same thing where it sets that age old uh, maxim of figure out if what the character is trying to do is impossible or just super easy mm -hmm. and don't roll dice then. 
because that doesn't do any good for anyone. But if either is true, uh, that it's possible but not easy, then that's where dice come mm-hmm. in. And only when the outcome is in question should a roll be called for. And even then, you might not need to do it. Uh, and it gets into like the heart. This section spoke to me mm. as I try to design games, which is multiple ability checks. Do you let characters try an unsuccessful ability check again? Yes or no? Why or why not? Are there times when they should and times when they shouldn't? Or should it just be one or the other? And it gets to a point that I've been thinking about a lot, which is a macro versus micro check is what I call it. Mm-hmm. And how that leads to story. So you 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 have a situation where the characters are trying to get into a walled city, but you need permission to enter. So they try to bluff their way in. And the 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 Bardi character goes up with the high deception check and says, I am here at the behest of the mayor of this city. And we are close friends. Okay, give me a deception check. Oh, I fail. Okay, how do we handle that? How does that go from a game mechanic to a story? A micro thing mm-hmm. is, all right, we're just going to then go to a different gate and we're going to try the same thing again. Or somebody else is going to step up and tell another story. Or that's that's the micro. The macro is just assume that how we are going to tell the story is changed because of this one check, there is no way that you or anyone else in your party is talking their way in. <laughs> and so, and so we can just move past that. We can, we can play that out. We can give that it's due. And then that's done. Come up with a new plan. Mm-hmm. And if a game can be one or the other, if all games need to have room for both uh, is, is a question that's constantly on my mind these yeah. days. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. And and you noted here in the notes too, where they talk about contests and the idea where if you have both sides roll, they don't really dive into how big a difference this is to have two sides rolling versus one side rolling against a stable number. Um, it makes for a very wild response, right? To two more, two swingy dice both being rolled with a huge range of what can possibly happen, right? Yeah. And that's where we get, you know, the the contest between the the arm wrestling match between the wizard and the barbarian, mm-hmm. where the barbarian is plus seven, the wizard is minus one. And if if it's just the barbarian going up against the wizard, then they're shooting for a DC 11. So you have a, you know, Whereas if that other die roll comes in, anything could happen. You're going to get a much more, you you have a better chance for a surprising result, <laughs> which some people, that's what they want. And, but a lot of people, they don't want that surprising result if it's instead of this arm wrestling match, it's the goblin guard with the plus zero to their perception check trying to, see you as you stealthily approach then you don't necessarily want that swinginess that's where you get the rogue with the plus 12 to their stealth check 
failing uh, more because the they roll low, goblin rolls high, and they are being seen. Yeah, and they do some nice jobs of trying to talk about yeah the the opening a door kind of situation that's similar to that where the high strength barbarian may or fighter may roll poorly, uh, but the rogue does well. They also do a nice job of explaining the difference between intelligence and wisdom that comes up often and giving these comparisons around finding a secret door. Uh, what'd you think of that? Yeah, I that again speaks to a problem with the game mm. that has never been successfully addressed, which is all right, it's two different checks to find the secret door. It's the perception check to notice that it's that that the, this section of the wall is a different color than the others. And then an intelligence check to figure out what that means. It's fine to say, well, this is our game and this is how this game works. But as soon as that perception check is made, the character with the low intelligence doesn't matter because they've already found the thing. Mm -hmm. And now the player is smarter than the character. So the player knows what that means. Yeah. The other characters and players are smarter than this uh, wisdom, high wisdom, low intelligence character. So they know what it means. So really it has nothing to do with intelligence. It's just that wisdom check that matters. And the game has never and maybe will never address that uh, because they, they it tries to make it something more complicated and more realistic than it really is, which is if you make the wisdom check or the investigation check, if you make the wisdom uh, perception check or the intelligence check, you're finding it. It's just the way it is. And it's okay if that's the way it, the game is. Just admit right. that's the way the game is. Yep. Don't try to make it more simulationist, mm -hmm. uh, right? Like real life than it needs to be. Yeah, agreed. So, uh, any any thoughts from you on that, or no? I mean, it, I tell think... me tell me why I'm wrong, Taylor. No, <laughs> the, the the ability scores are a little close together in some cases, particularly intelligence and wisdom, and you know, you can combine them, but then you only have five ability scores uh, or you separate them. And sometimes it's a little arbitrary. Um, the game clearly, we talked about this in the player's handbook. It, it doesn't really know how stealth and traps should work. <laughs> there is an answer there, right. but it, it is confused itself on it. I would not bet that they're going to solve this in 2024. Uh, because I, I, you know, again, that it should be it should be less prescriptive and more about understanding the overall thing that you're trying to do. And and it's it's not a, what's the point of the secret doors is the real question here, and not to me intelligence wisdom. I think this is a fine way to explain some differences between intelligence and wisdom. That's what I like about this. It's not how you should set up secret doors, and and that goes to the question right. of why did you put a secret door here that's your goal right like why is a trap here why is a thing here then make that experience build that experience and make it so it's rewarding and it's less about these two ability scores i yes you're right noticing a thing though is such an important part of the game that it's still 
problematic. It's still, sure. um, regardless of whether it's a secret door or a hidden goblin guard or or something, there's there's always this. The player is always going to want yeah. to use their highest stat, understandably. Yeah, the, the description here is a little bit like, oh, the player, you know, with the high wisdom notices a clear spot on the wall, but doesn't know what to make of it. And the intelligent person mm -hmm. doesn't see it, but if they were to see it, it would go, oh, it's clean. You know, if it's pointed out to them, it goes, oh, it's 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 all clean like that. Well, maybe it's a secret door. When the reality is the players are just going to be smart enough to go like, wait, a cleared section of the wall? We're going to go mess with it. Now, what you can do in yeah. terms of the stepwise progression to make it sort of more interesting and have steps to it is to say like, yeah, you found it. And when you make this investigation check, you realize what the trigger is that opens it that might be across the room or and 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 that could be fun to say like well it's the suit of armor that you have to move its arm and if someone investigates the suit of armor they would also find it that way or you know so it can be just mm -hmm. you can find ways to make it interesting but but you want to start with that design question of why am i even putting this here and what's the point of it and it can be fun to show a b relationships right that the the suit of armor when you lift its arm opens the secret door can be fun um, the chair, when you sit on it, you know, yeah. triggers the revolving door, like in Indiana Jones, Last Crusade, can be a ton of fun because they might just sit on it, you know, and there could even be something that suggests yeah. sitting. And so part of the fun may be they may just do it without even searching, or it could be that they search it out. Something must open this door. What is it? Uh, let me sit and think about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, I I agree. It's it 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 is it's a fun part of the game, but it's also rules wise a frustrating part of the game to design well to have it transfer from the game to a story. Um, yeah. Anyway, next we get sections on attack rolls, saving throws, and difficulty classes. Um, attack rolls pretty much say, hey. You roll this die, you add your bonus, and that's what an attack roll is. And you can also use this, an attack roll, for non-combat activities like archery or dart contests. And my first thought was, that was a, that's really awkward. Uh, I have seen so many games. You know, I've edited probably 500 adventures, if not 1,000. And the, they'll say, oh, we have an archery contest. So characters... If they you know hit a DC 18, they hit the target, and yeah. you know everyone in the the place hits the target. And uh, okay, that's so. Sometimes those you you have to do it differently. You have to say okay, who has the highest score, and they get a certain number of points, and you can mess around with that. But just to say okay, yeah, just make an attack roll against AC 15 is not a good way to run yeah. a, a contest like that. Yeah. Uh, saving throws, they oh, specify saving throws are when you are avoiding something as opposed to doing something. If you're doing something, probably an ability check is better. If you're trying to avoid something, then probably a saving throw is better. Yeah, and then, nice job and then we get to the bane down, of my existence. They break down what each ability does and what you're usually saving against so this is all good baseline stuff to know that yeah again would have been in chapter one yeah mm -hmm. yeah and then they get to the bane of my existence which is this difficulty class chart where 
very easy as a DC five, easy as a DC 10, DC 15 is moderate and so on and so on. And I always, always, always get adventures where people are putting in DC 10 checks that are very important, especially at low level that they're like, oh, well, it's easy. So everyone should make it and everyone fails the check because DC 10 is, if you don't have a special training in the skill or an ability score that gives you a bonus, you have a 50% chance of failing something that's easy. Now, maybe it's just a matter of changing the names mm -hmm. uh, from, you know, make a DC 10 moderate and then go from there. But it is it is a very misleading name for these difficulty classes. I think of these names as uh, like the game of hacky sack, which when you see like good hacky sack players, you know, these things are easy. Yet the ball will be dropped. <laughs> the hacky sack will be dropped, right? Mm -hmm. Like yes. you cannot keep it going forever. It's just going to happen, right? Uh, and, and that's sort of what it's what these things are kind of like, which is different than what you think of when you think of the word easy. It's, it's easy with with a continual chance of failure. And oh, look at the D20, right? Like it, it causes these problems. Um, I, I think the thing to me is that this this needs that. Well, this is built very much around the, the fifth edition philosophy of representing the world right should this thing be easy or hard and it's not looking at the gameplay of it and i some of my dearest friends you know i have these questions all the time right you know is rope always easy to climb or does it depend on what you're doing and 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 how do you characterize that right and i think there needs to be that additional piece here that yes the world can be this way but also what's the gameplay experience because maybe you don't actually want to check at all or maybe you want the check to be challenging. So think of how to explain that challenge so it feels right. You know, the experience matters and you need to have that in here to some extent. Mm -hmm. And uh, the last thing we'll talk about today is proficiency, where it just simply gives you what was in the player's handbook essentially is that you're proficient with certain things. And so therefore you have a better chance of succeeding if you do something whether it's an attack roll or a saving throw or a, an ability check, if you have proficiency, you will have a better chance of succeeding. And you, as the game master, should use your best discretion in figuring out what a proficiency might cover. They do, as Teo said, put these ability score, uh, ability charts in to show you what each ability does. And, uh, the skills are pretty uh, simple words that you can then uh, expand upon to say that you are, since you are proficient in survival, although it doesn't necessarily say so, I'm going to say you are good at doing X, whatever X might be. Yeah, there's a table I think they should have in this section, which they don't. It, it, to me, it's just as important as this typical DCs, 5, 10, 15, 20, et cetera. And that is what you can expect at different levels of play that characters will have. 
And I think our minds are often, those of us who are older DMs especially, our minds are clouded by what it worked like in different editions, especially third edition, but fourth mm-hmm. edition as well, where you just automatically kind of got better at a bunch of things. And fifth edition, mm-hmm. if you are unskilled at level one and you just mm-hmm. have a 10 in the ability, at level one, you have a plus zero to the roll. At level 20, you have a plus mm-hmm. zero to the roll. <laughs> And it's yes. so easy to forget that because the swing is fairly big. It's not as big as third edition of a, someone who's super skilled, but still, you know, at 17th level, someone who has a plus four in their ability score and has expertise is plus 17, but the other person is plus mm-hmm. zero. So this really matters when you're doing things like everybody's supposed to get away by climbing up the wall and you make it really hard. Someone could fail for the rest of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I'm that kind of player who'll roll right. poorly in those situations. And so proficiency is a really great topic. I like what they say here. I like that they talk about tools, but they really should help DMs understand that the difference between unskilled, skilled, skilled in your primary class, expertise, those are big mm-hmm. differences. And, you know, it, it can be fine when you're thinking of like the trap that the person who is trained in your party who, you know, cares about this and wants a challenge should get. Or everybody has to climb the wall to get away from the dragon or get killed. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I think we have covered the first section fairly well. We will try to get through the rest of this chapter next episode. Teos, thank you, as always, for sharing your expertise. I appreciate it. I hope that our patrons appreciate it too. And thank you patrons who help us make this show possible. Thank you to our master of dungeon supporters. We have a special shout out to our master of realms supporters in our show notes and for the masters of the multiverse. Well, you know that this is for you. Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, Krishna Simon say, Andy Shockney, Ross Sandberg, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Falcon Neil, Sean Molly, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, The Mathemagician, Chad Lynch, Jim Klingler, aka DM Prime Mover, Brian King, Chad Jackson, Sean Hurst, Paige Lightman and Ben Heisler, The Mighty Jerd, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Seth Eckel, Darren Chandler, DM Chad, Evil John, John Carney, uh, Merrick Blackman, Steve Bissonette, Craig Bailey, and Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Uh, thank you to our listeners. If you would like, if you do like the show, please consider supporting us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash mastering D. Also, if you get a chance, leave us a review via Apple Podcasts because that helps us. Uh, get noticed by other folks and you can also subscribe to our youtube channel if you watch there because that helps make us more visible as well tails where can people find you on the internets find me at alphastream.org uh you can also find me on mastodon i am working on two things as time allows that involve sort of fun uh, collating of sort of data. Uh, one is the book scan set, and another is the uh, differences between Wizards of the Coast uh, books editions and edits for inclusivity. And so both of them I'm having fun playing with, and at some point we'll 
release those and share those so people can learn from them. So I'm excited. Where we find you, Sean? Mm -hmm. And you can go to Alpha Stream. We you can go to alphastream.org to get everything that Teos does. Uh, to get everything that I do, you basically have to come here. Although you can go follow me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can I'm on Blue Sky now. Uh, I'm on Mastodon at Dice Camp. Uh, we're on YouTube. We're on Patreon. You know where to find us. If you just search Mastering Dungeons, you're going to find all the good stuffs. Uh, so, Teos, now that we are halfway through this chapter on running your game, what are we going to do now? Well, I'm going to rem remind myself that my life always, Sean, has really been about the digital experience. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm going to go fail miserably several times <laughs> at doing an easy task. 